name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. There aren't many silver linings to be found over the past 18 months, but one of the very few is the resilience of the banking sector throughout the pandemic. Even during the worst of the market volatility last year, banks were able to continue to provide credit and intermediation services to customers, helping to keep the economy afloat. This resilience has been widely attributed to the regulatory reforms of the past decade, changes that have meant banks have spent recent years focusing on raising capital levels, reducing leverage, restructuring business models, and cutting costs. Those reforms are now largely at an end, with the exception of a final package of Basel measures and the last phase of initial margin requirements. The question is, with the reforms out of the way, what does the future hold for investment banks? What's the outlook for profitability and how will the competitive environment evolve? In short, what will it take to be a successful investment bank? Once again, I'm here with ISDA Chief Executive Scott O'Malia. Scott, before we bring on our guest to talk about the future, let's spend a minute talking about the past. You were a US Commodity Futures Trading Commission commissioner at the time the regulatory reforms were being drawn up. Can you give us a perspective of what regulators actually wanted to achieve? Well, certainly the major objectives of this were focused on clearing, reporting, trading, margin, and capital. And that's margin for non-cleared trades. And those were the core elements. However, it came with a whole load of other regulations and, of course, the idiosyncratic application of these things. But that's probably for another podcast. But by and large, what we did strive to do is make the markets more transparent, certainly more safe with clearing requirements and capital requirements, as well as margin requirements. So those are the core elements around the safety and soundness. Yeah, absolutely. With the the majority of those reforms now in place, this seems an opportune moment to talk about the outlook for investment banks going forward. And our guest today is the perfect person to do just that. Yeah, that's right. I'll be talking to JP Morgan banking analyst, Kian Abu Hussein, one of the authors of a recent report on the future of investment banks. Kian is one of the most prominent and well-respected banking analysts out there, so I'm really looking forward to hearing his views. Great. Well, over to you then, Scott. Kian, it's great to have you on The Swap. Thanks for joining us. I'm looking forward to our conversation, and for the record, you are the first podcast where we have a banker analyzing the state of investment banking, identifying where there are strengths and there are weaknesses. In your report, I see on a whole a lot of good news and some opportunities for the largest global banks to leverage both their product and geographic diversity to optimize customer service. Your report also points out the opportunity to leverage data and technology to cut costs and digitize services. Now, I'd like to start off by briefly looking at the pandemic to get your perspective on how financial markets held up. And if you share the view that financial markets actually were pretty resilient during this crisis with banks continuing to provide access to financing and risk management services. And more specifically, to what extent can this uh, resilience be attributed to the global regulatory reforms implemented after the last financial crisis? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Really excited to be on your podcast. Yeah, in our report, we discussed some of these issues and uh, we actually believe the regulatory environment has helped to make the banking system and specifically the investment banking environment safer. Why is that? Clearly, the additional capital requirements on more leveraged products, the leverage ratio, which clearly was introduced, especially had an impact in Europe on the investment banking industry. And also, I would say rules around Dodd-Frank and uh, Falker rule 
around prop trading clearly have made the system better in a sense that investment banks have moved more and more towards trading facilitator player rather than, you know, position taking and inventory positioning, which clearly in an environment of dislocation, as we saw through the COVID crisis, historically have led to material losses. So really, it's a significantly better industry in terms of risk levels and is really becoming an executor, a platform to trade, to execute transactions rather than operating on a principal basis. And we have seen that through COVID and the banks and the investment banks in particular have done extremely well considering the material volatilities they've seen, the dislocation, some asset classes, especially at the beginning of the crisis before the central banks came in. So from our perspective, this has been a test, so to say, of the resilience of the investment banking industry. You mentioned the central bank response. In your paper, you talk about how banks have little incentive to be liquidity providers in markets experiencing multiple standard deviation moves. And you also stated that they priced the pandemic and and the emerging market crash of 2013 appropriately. Now, if we look at that response, the central banks did act quickly, as you noted, and could have a, a role to play going forward if liquidity providers pull out. So, What's the next crisis going to look at? Can we expect other market participants to step in or do we expect the central bank to be kind of that backstop for future crisis? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I do believe that the central banks going forward are going to be on the hook. They're going to be the liquidity providers because really what has happened through the regulatory environment from Basel, from Volcker, from Dodd-Frank, that really risk has moved from the investment banking industry to the end user. And the end user clearly is involved in one-way trades in a dislocation. And if you don't have a facilitator who offers liquidity because they're not allowed to, or they have punitive capital requirements to do so, then you need a new person in the room. And that new person, as we saw in COVID, is the central bank's And I do believe if we want to avoid dislocations, where really the end user is going to get hit, not so much the investment banks, we need the central bank to continue to provide that liquidity. And I think that is now going to be, so to say, the norm because we opened the Pandora box on this situation. So from our perspective, one detriment of clearly these heavy regulations is the fact that we need a liquidity provider liquidity is an issue and uh, liquidity will have to be provided by the central banks going forward. And that's what we have seen in this environment. And I think in the COVID environment, I think we will see that in the next crisis again. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, I've kind of hinted at some of the findings in your report, but why don't I let you kind of put in your own words what your report says and summarize the highlights of that? Yeah. In terms of Our investment banking report, to be honest, we weren't that excited when we started writing this report. We thought maybe the investment banking industry is, um, you know, has a lot of issues. We are operating in a low vol environment, low interest rate environment, etc. Heavily regulated industry, clearly. But the more and more we did the work, we came out and we see several things. First of all, we see a revenue environment, which is positive. 
we are growing with notional derivatives and notional derivatives grow generally with GDP. So that can be take us to three, four, even up to 5% growth rates. But we also have opportunities because QE unwinding, which is a big concern clearly to the market, actually is going to bring volatility. And the good thing about investment banking is we have diversified products which means we are, might move from more illiquid products to more liquid products as volatility picks up, and that could be a big revenue driver. We have the whole private market for the mid-corporate, which still needs to be penetrated. That's a huge opportunity. We have China in the long term, where only 3 to 4% of the fixed income and equity markets are actually owned by foreigners, and these are the largest markets in the world after the U.S., we have ESG as an opportunity, and we still have areas which are remaining to be totally untapped, such as European securitization markets, which are less than one-tenth of the U.S. market. So I see a lot of opportunities, not just from a cyclical perspective, i.e. growth rate, uh, GDP-driven, but also structural. And the other thing that we found is that, uh, coming back to your question on regulation, Regulation has driven a lot of technology advantages, and technology is really the driver of making trading cheaper, better, faster, and as a result, more efficient for the industry, which drives clear RE levels. And lastly, all this regulation that we've seen has meant that over the last 10 years, we have seen consolidation in the market. So the top five players in fixed income are roughly 60% of the market now, and the top five in equities are actually slightly more than 60. So consolidation clearly uh, means that we see a more efficient system for the larger investment banks, which can invest and uh, produce new technology to improve the trading platforms that we're seeing today. That's fairly optimistic, if, certainly if, if people make the investments in technologies, it sounds. So what's your outlook for the growth and profitability? You mentioned there's a bit of a barbell here that, you know, the big banks stand to make some big opportunities and big money here. How about the entire sector, though? That's a good question. And I do believe that the sector will grow. I do believe that, however, the benefit will be mainly felt for the larger players, because really due to technology, due to also regulation around compensation, Really, we're moving more and more into, and we have moved into a fixed cost business due to regulation, human resources, finances, risk management, controlling all these factors have driven us to a fixed cost business. In some banks, we actually see, especially in the Europeans, where we have EU compensation rules, we see that roughly 70% of the cost is actually fixed, versus in the US, more like 50% of the cost base is fixed. So with a very high cost base, you need scale. And clearly, we see mainly scale within the larger US players, but also some of the Europeans which have done well. But we believe that roughly five to six players will make REs over cost of equity, which we actually set around 12%. But we believe that the tier two players, the players who are below these five to six larger plays in equities and fixed income trading, will be making REs more in the high single-digit range. So it is a bit of a, a tier one, tier two environment. It doesn't mean that the tier two players cannot make any money or never make any proper returns, because I think what they need to adjust to is to a model, which is more what I call execution-only based. They have 
corporates, which are payment customers, and they can do an execution effects model or rates model for them. Or they have a private bank like the Swiss banks do, and they execute their trades. So using customer relationships and putting the investment bank next to it can reduce your cost as you're driving it more towards what I call an execution-only model to your key customers, meaning that you need to have smaller scale, but you can still be very profitable. And if you look at some of the Scandinavian banks or some of the Spanish banks, they actually make very good return in investment banking because they have embedded these kind of models where they're basically trying to focus on their core corporate or private banking customer base. So overall, yes, the REs are going to be lower for the tier two, but I think they are adjusting and we have seen some banks which are scaling back to that kind of support for the corporate customer base, what I call the captive model, which will drive the REs back towards 10%, which I think is acceptable from a shareholder perspective. Great. Now, the report notes that the headwinds from the regulatory change, and you mentioned that earlier, are mostly over, but some important changes are still on the horizon, like the fundamental review of the trading book. What impact do you expect this to have on bank RWAs and the return on equity? Yeah, FRTB, we are actually not so concerned. We believe that impact will actually be quite minimal when we talk to the banks and when we do actually our own calculations. So we don't believe this is going to be a major issue for the investment banking industry. We think it's going to be very manageable. Overall, we believe that that could shave off maybe 30 to 40 basis points of tier one capital allocated to the group. It could reduce the investment banking RE around 50 basis points in that kind of range. So we don't believe it is detriment to the investment banking industry. And hence, we don't see it as a major regulatory hurdle to change the environment. We think most of the regulatory changes, even taking Basel III into account, are already done. Now, technology features pretty strongly in here, and you mentioned in your opening remarks. How will this become a differentiating factor between investment banks and which part of the business is technology investment most needed? The two areas that I would say are the most interesting and the most interesting by far is clearly execution. And I think there's one thing to be said, speed of execution continuously improving. And I think AI will be involved more and more in this area, especially starting with linear products, where you can have front to back, pure electronic execution models with no really human touch. I think we will see that actually very soon. And Following that, I think we will see also the same kind of product for more liquid products like equity derivatives, simple equity derivative products, more on products which are nonlinear over time, especially on indices. So what we expect is that AI will have a material impact on execution models. And clearly the banks that can invest and have the money to invest will benefit the most from that and will get the largest share. Again, that comes back to the discussion we had around scale. On top of that, clearly, there's also improvements that we're seeing in the back office side, you know, blockchain technology, improvement of netting environment that we're expecting to see over time. And I would say also what's very important, which I think the investment banks can do better at, which I think they haven't yet, is really on the front office side, especially on platforms. You know, we're seeing a lot of 
other financial industries, especially around retail banking, et cetera, having very strong platforms, we don't see that yet in the investment banking space. And I think platforms in terms of chats, platforms in terms of execution, platform in terms of research, events, et cetera, capturing the time of the client and then monetizing that by analyzing that data as other industries are doing very well in the technology space and basically servicing the client better. I don't think the investment banking industry is doing that. I shall say here, I think Bloomberg here has done a great job of actually capturing the mind space of clients through their chats, through their news flow information. And I think the investment banks need to really improve their front office platform as well. So I think they're doing very well on the execution only. I think they're spending time improving clearing. And I think the next thing where I see the opportunity is really around platforms in particular. And platforms takes us to other things such as data analytics. It takes us to third-party products that they can sell over time. Some investment banks actually are starting to opening their platforms to other providers, which I think is a future. And even advertising potentially non-bank products that maybe the client base will be interested in. Really, I think there will be Platforms are important, there will be an open platform, and that's going to be a very exciting space besides just execution. I think that's fascinating. I read your report with interest, and particularly on this data question, you really kind of minimize the impact of AI or the next great thing and really focus on the fundamentals of data. What are the customers giving you today? How do you link those together to offer scale, to keep the client focused and engaged in buying more services? all the way through the, the life cycle of their journey or their all the services that they might need through an investment bank. So it, it really was pretty fundamental, but clearly people aren't fully optimizing their, their data and technology solutions. So that's interesting. And if I may add there as well, is that I guess with the cloud and this more standardized data on one system, and clearly all the investment banks are going in that direction, I think we're going to have more homogeneous data, data that we can share between divisions, and that will improve the analytical skills of the investment banks as well. So I think it's just a matter of time. But I'm very excited about this space that cross-selling as such will be a big opportunity. Yeah. Well, it is that we're working on a number of initiatives that bring greater standardization and automation to the post-trade process. We're focused on digitizing documents. So it's kind of a golden source. And once you put in your details, they'll continue to populate and flow entirely through the entire life cycle of a trade or through a customer, focusing on digital definitions and automating and including price and reference sources. So we think about all of our services as a digital service and and moving completely off of paper, moving off of PDFs to make sure that we, you know, we bring the industry together to deliver these mutualized services that they can all benefit from. And so that's something we've been looking at. But I'll tell you what, these are some hard yards and it's tough to get people to focus on this. And your report articulates kind of the opportunity, the cost savings. Uh, I think you say there's a 50-50 between front and back office cost share, right, in terms of their spend. And that should be more 60-40, 60% front office, 40% back office, which of course requires a lot of cost savings or reduction in services through digitization. Improvement in services, I think, is probably the better way to put it, using digitalization. You want to talk about that? 
Yes, I think there's a lot of potential, really the opportunity around back office and standardization, which then clearly allows us to really link up not within the firm, but also with other parties. And we believe that there's there's material cost savings to be had. And I think it is finally becoming a focus. And I think you guys have done a great job to, to drive that forward in terms of standardization and using technology. And, and again, standardization, I think, is a key here to really improve the back office side. And that to us will reduce errors, that will reduce time to execute. And more importantly, also, it will reduce the automated process to get there to reduce costs. And As a result, I think it's a very high return on investment, and we're seeing banks or investment banks really focusing on this area. And we believe there could be a material reduction in overall cost levels, as you mentioned, the 60-40 range. We think even over time, it could be even even more towards front office versus back office, as back office costs will be more and more automated. So yes, we're very excited about that. And we believe that is going to be a material driver to drive operating leverage, because in our report, we don't just talk about revenues. We also believe there's actually improvement on the cost side. Yeah. We share that view. It's just, it's uh, tough sledding to get everybody to to kind of sign up for this stuff and, and to really implement it. Uh, we're undeterred, but, you know, tough yards. Now, an important change since the COVID crisis, and everybody's talking about it now, is the increased focus on ESG. And I this has been underway for some time, but it's really captured the focus of financial services, asset managers, et cetera. So what role can banks and financial markets generally play in the shift to a greener economy? And how important is this sector to investment banks in terms of future revenue growth? Yeah, I think clearly there's the ethical part, which is very important. And I think the investment banks are responding to that. And I think that's that's really good news. I think the second part over time is clearly also how important could it be from a revenue perspective. And we believe it is quite material. It's clearly very small in terms of overall size today, globally. I think Europe is more advanced around the ESG space, and you see that in the bond issuance and the percentage of bond issuance, especially if you compare it over the last two years, especially this year has been very material in Europe when I look at corporate bond issuance around ESG. And by the way, ESG bonds generally are tighter in terms of spread, so it's a great opportunity for issues to come out with ESG-specific bonds. I think really the sector will take off as we see more standardization and clarity around standardization on ESG and also how banks are measured around ESG, which can be more quantified because that's really difficult today for banks and also for us as an outsider to really say, okay, who is good at ESG, who is not so good on ESG because it's really difficult to quantify. But in terms of revenue opportunity, I think it is material and I think banks that are transparent and forward-looking and also a bit experimental will succeed in this area. And I have to say the Europeans have done extremely well in this area and, and really embracing it. Now, what I would add, though, as well is clearly it is not just a one-way positive because clearly there's the other side of inventory business, which potentially has to be changed or reduced in an ESG world. So I'm excited about it. 
But I would also mention, and I think the banks, investment banks should talk about that as well, the potential impact it will have on the other side of business, which potentially has to be reduced or mitigated or changed, which clearly can have a negative impact as well on the revenue line. But I think if you take an overall long-term approach, it is clearly a positive impact on the overall revenue line. Very difficult to quantify, but another one of those potential positive nuggets that we would put on our 4% plus to 5% growth rates that we're expecting for the industry in the long term. Interesting. Let's talk about the consolidation. This has been talked about for many years that it's coming. Do you expect to see any further consolidation among investment banks? And what will it take to be a leading player in the future? I actually expect limited investment banking consolidation. And the reason why it's, it's gotten more difficult in a sense that clearly you know, there would be material GSIP impacts. So regulatory-wise, for example, it's going to be very difficult due to the add-on on capital requirements, due to the fact that you operate with a lot of leverage exposure in an investment bank. Secondly, technology. Everybody is building their own technology platforms, which again makes it difficult to integrate. And I think these days, much more than 10 years ago, if you would have done a merger, technology is a key issue and differentiator and bringing one platform, a legacy platform on the other can be very, very costly these days. So what I think what we will see is actually two things. We will see right sizing, and we have seen that by quite a few investment banks. And secondly, we see actually more and more exit. And we see that uh, continuously in the industry as well. So we will see a consolidation process over time This will be likely speeding up through crisis situations where basically banks will then have to reassess due to the pressure by shareholders. They will need to reassess the size of the operations. And we see as a result over time a continuous consolidation of the industry. But I don't see a lot of M&A transactions between investment banks as a driver of consolidating the industry. What, what I think will be more interesting is maybe a corporate bank getting together with a very strong investment bank or a private bank being acquired by an investment bank to create captive revenue streams to improve your scale, improve your captive business. Because the name of the game is in the investment banking industry, and that's why we also talk in our report about the quality of revenues are improving captive revenues. And clearly, if you can get more captive revenues, that's a positive. And as a result, I think we will see more vertical integrations where the investment banks will look at other sources, such as a large corporate bank, a payment player, a private bank, to gain captive revenue streams to increase their scale. Interesting. Let's shift that a little bit and look at it from the perspective of a fintech or somebody who's going to disintermediate banking a little bit. The report actually plays down the risk of disintermediation by fintech companies. Two questions. Why is that? And is there a risk from other new entrants? Yeah, it's a good question. And at first we were concerned, but more and more the time we spend on the investment banking industry is, first of all, I would say the difficulty of the investment banking industry of penetrating it by fintech is... Uh, first of all, is the acquisition or cost of clients is very high just because you're operating with corporate clients in particular. So it's very difficult to enter as such rather than, let's say, retail banking, which is significantly easier, more transparent, so to say, as well to the client base and more simple products. Secondly, which I think is the biggest, biggest difficulty for the fintech space 
it's already very technology-driven and technology-efficient, unlike retail banking. Execution speed is very, very fast, milliseconds even. So for fintech to come in, what do they offer their industry? Why would they build a massive platform, which is a massive upfront cost, when already the environment is very efficient? And thirdly, I would say that the investment banking industry clearly consumes a lot of capital and there is risk capital involved to execute trades for clients. So that will be, again, another big detriment for the fintech players to come in, regulation, capital requirements, and already a very relatively efficient execution platform that we see in the industry. So I think for fintechs, it's very, very difficult actually to enter that space and disrupt it. So as a result, I really don't see fintech as a disruptor. Where I think fintech could play a role is clearly aggregator models of trades and as a result, reducing execution costs, so to say, of bringing transparency to the client. So I think that's one. And the other space is clearly on the platform side. And there, again, I think we discussed that the banks are starting to make inroads, starting to look at platforms, looking at data analytics over time. And I think those are the areas where there's opportunities, but the investment banks are focused on. So I think investment banks have started with a whole technology change much earlier, driven by regulation. And that has put them on a much better footing than retail banking when it comes to fintech competition. And that's why I think the investment bank will be in much better space to fend off fintech players coming in. Now, your report is voluminous. It covers so many different areas that we're not able to get to today. But I'd like to wrap up by finding out a little bit more about you and and what led you to this industry and your leadership in terms of your bank analytics and and analysis, financial analysis. How did you get here? Yes, uh, I got lucky that I got into a university program in Canada, which is called the Portfolio Management Society. And basically, it introduced me to the financial industry and it was a selective program. and, And that really started for me the excitement about financial services and the equity markets in particular and capital markets. And from Canada, I was lucky enough to get a job offer to come to London. And really, it just always was on my mind to look at banks which are complex, exciting to analyze. And and even today, I'm very excited about the industry years after, decades after covering it, because it is constantly changing. And in particular, the investment banking industry is always a soft spot in my heart because it is continuously evolving and it's it's really changing, continuous driven by regulation, by the environment, new products, and now clearly the focus around technology and platforms, etc. And I'm already thinking about the next chapter of digital currencies and central bank digital currencies and the excitement and the new environment that we will have from then onwards. So I think running the bank's team and seeing the changes and seeing what's coming in front of us and constantly evolving really makes this job very exciting and very positive as well, which is nice to see. Well, certainly let us know when you release your uh, digital currency, your crypto analysis. Everybody's wondering about that, how it's going to change banking, how it's going to change payments, how it's going to change everything. So we'll have you back on the podcast when you're ready to release that document. I'm sure everybody will be listening for it. 
Well, Kian, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to have the conversation and for you to share your insight into the market. Thank you very much. Scott, the outlook for investment banking appears pretty positive over the coming years. But based on Kian's comments, it seems technology and automation are really going to be key. As you mentioned during the interview, this is an area that ISDA has been closely focusing on. Can you briefly summarize some of the initiatives that are currently underway? Sure. We're working on several projects intended to digitize and automate the entire life cycle of the derivatives trade. We have the common domain model as one example, and it establishes a digital representation of the trade so we can digitize the processes and define the life cycle. This will enable us to automate solutions, to make them interoperable and scalable in a way that's never been done before, which seems completely consistent with Kean's analysis and what will make banks far more profitable and effective. This is exciting. We're doing a demonstration on regulatory reporting, which um, will optimize reg reporting, both from a compliance standpoint and an operation standpoint. And we've recently also signed an MOU with two other trade associations, ICMA, the International Capital Markets Association, and ISLA, a Securities Lending Association, to de- further develop the CDM. This will not only deepen the CDM, but broaden it to other business units. So that's, that's fantastic and a positive development. And we're also working on uh, rolling out the first natively digital set of definitions uh, that puts these things in a golden source state, uh, which will help us use, again, better automation and better uh, control of our definitions and contract terms. And to finalize it, we're also combining that with is to create which is an online multilateral negotiation platform to help firms uh, negotiate and execute documents online. So this is a complete package. We're thinking about it at the very most granular level, at the documentation level, and then certainly at the platform level so we can bring all the pieces together. A lot of work, but super important in terms of achieving that optimal digital state. There are several other important digital initiatives ISDA's working on that we could talk about, but we're bang out of time for this episode. We've got an exciting lineup of guests for the rest of the year, though, so please do keep an eye open for our forthcoming episodes. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.